So I think that's uh, really a perfect transition to our message today. Um, Jason Faleta <laughs> is here with us, Vice President at Tier Fund USA. Um, are you going to be a part of the VP debates? Or yeah. is that okay? Because I know that you were a VP as well. So I, I will be in there. That's great. Known Jason for years. Uh, love him, appreciate him, and grateful that he is here with us this morning talking about Acts 13. So take it away, Jason. All right. Thank you, Kurt. Um, and thank you just for asking me to be a part of Sunday morning. I'm really grateful to do that. And I still feel weird, like preaching a text to a group of people I can't see, but that's just how it is. It's, that's the quarantine time. Um, so let's get to it. Um, I love the book of Acts. And part of it is because it's like so many things are happening when the spirit of God enters into the world. We get to see the activity of God's kingdom starting to break into this, the world's kingdom in the very initial moments and all the struggles that come with that. And so I was really glad when Kurt asked me to do this and just very grateful to be here. So just to let you know what's happening in this passage, and we'll jump into different parts of it here and there. Basically, um, Paul and his entourage uh, have been on their first missionary journey, and they visited a couple different cities. They're in what is modern day Turkey, and they are going to these various cities and they kind of have a pattern. They go into a city, they find the synagogue, they preach, and then see what happens. Um, so this story is one of those stories and it's in a particular city called Pisidian and Antioch. And so the very first thing that they do when they go to the synagogue is they preach history. So they're speaking to the Jewish people and a few Gentile God-fearing people who have come as well. And the first thing they do is repeat the Jewish history to the people. And this is like a pattern we see all the way in, the, in many places in the New Testament. Stephen, if you'll remember, preaches this really extensive history before he's martyred. And they're always going back to the history of the Jewish people. And so I'm going to not go through all of it. I'm just going to read one portion of it. This is verse 16 in Acts chapter 13. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct. I really like that phrase, endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. So at the time that Paul is preaching this history to these people who know this history because they read it every single Sunday in the synagogue, they're actually about 1,500 years away from the Exodus. 1,500 years away from the Exodus. And this, there are a handful of consistent identities of God that his people continually go back to in the God who rescued you out of Egypt, who set you free from slavery is one of those identities. It's important to, to note that this is 1,500 years after that happened. So the next time you might hear somebody say slavery was a long time ago, remember that even 1,500 years 
after the Israelites were in slavery, their primary descriptor of God, one of their primaries, was his identity as the liberator who set them free from slavery. Now, he spends a paragraph basically covering the next thousand years. In one paragraph, he goes through the prophets, through the kings, and covers an entire thousand years. So before I keep going further, I want to give you a little bit of context as to why some of this history is so important to these people and to Paul. So he's preaching to what the scholar Willie Jennings describes as a diaspora people. He is preaching to a people that have been dispersed, people who've been uprooted from their land, people who are living far from Jerusalem. And these are Jews who feel very much marginalized in the empire, in the Roman Empire. They very much feel a deep awareness of who they are inside of the Roman Empire. And the truth is, they're really afraid. Um, they are very afraid of assimilation, of losing their culture, losing their traditions, and they have really good reason to be afraid. Uh, Willie Jennings described the purpose of the Roman Empire was to make every person in its own image. The purpose of the Roman Empire was to cityfy. Uh, I don't know if, if he invented that word or like that's maybe I just never heard it before, but cityfy is this word of, you know, this new way of living where we take people off their agricultural lands, their ancestral lands, we seize that land, we use it to produce food for these huge cities that we're building. And in those cities, you've got tons of displaced people who've been removed from their land or, or left, and you've got a lot of slaves, and you've got just this very stratified society. And so the Jews are living in that setting, and they're terrified of just becoming, you know, citified by the Roman Empire and losing their heritage, losing their history. So that's some important context for us. So what happens next is that Paul shifts from talking about history to then talking about the present. So I'm going to jump into verse 13. I'll kind of jump around here, but or sorry, 23. I'll kind of jump around here, but basically he moves from talking about David and Jesse and all these kings and prophets of the past, and he comes to Jesus. From this man referring to David, this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Jumping ahead a couple verses, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, and I'm jumping ahead to verse 38, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. So that was a lot there. He basically took all their history and said, this all points to Jesus Christ, who lived, who was murdered, 
he was innocent, but he was murdered and who was resurrected. And because of Jesus Christ, we have the good news, the salvation of the world, the forgiveness of sins and being set free from sin. I want to sit on this idea of good news a little bit. Um, I think that particularly that phrase set free from sin is a really important one when you think of how Paul chose to describe their history. Set free from sin. We tend to focus on forgiveness of sin, right? Um, but this idea of being set free from sin, what is, how does that make sense? And how does that connect to the history of God as the one who rescued them from Egypt? Well, these people know, and it's ingrained in them, that slavery that they experienced was sinful. It was evil. It was violent. It was awful. Did they need to be forgiven for that? No, they needed to be set free from that. You see, this is a really expansive idea of sin. Not only are we forgiven for our sin, yes, but the part that we have tended to lose in the modern church is the expansiveness of sin and how we can be set free from the sins of the world, set free from the sins of the things that we operate in or that have subjugated us or whatever it is. Whatever it is. Sorry, that was like a hiccup that I paused halfway through. <laughs> now, this, yeah, you enjoyed that. Um, the way that I like to describe this, because it has huge ramifications for the good news, is that when we domesticate sin to being such a personal issue, we domesticate redemption. So that if sin is domesticated to this behavior or that behavior, then Jesus's reign and redemption is also domesticated. It is limited to just that forgiveness piece. And this is very real in the modern church. I mean, if I became the man that my high school youth group wanted me to be, I would have believed that Jesus Christ, God himself, became human, lived, performed miracles, taught, changed the world, died, was murdered, and rose from the dead so that I would have the self-discipline and the power to not listen to the Wu-Tang Clan. And that vision of the kingdom, I'm glad you're enjoying that, Kurt, <laughs> that vision of the kingdom is ridiculous. Can you imagine how limited that is? Why do we even need the resurrected Christ to live that way? What do we need him for? What is the good news then if it's not this freedom from these cultural things around us? This is what I would like to propose here, is that when they announce the good news and then they immediately let it break into their moment, and we'll get into that in a second, they were announcing the future. And it's a future that they were experiencing in the present in pieces and in glimpses. And it is a beautiful future that truly is good news. They were announcing what the world will be when Jesus reigns, that he already is resurrected and reigns. And when Jesus reigns, there will no, be no more slavery. When Jesus reigns, there will be no racism. When Jesus reigns, there will be no sexism. When Jesus reigns, there will be no ethnic divisions between Jew and Gentile. When Jesus reigns, there will be no more violence. There will be no more evil like this. 
And that announcement of the good news is extraordinarily um, attractive. Um, and it is something that draws people in through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we do live in a real world that is not Jesus's kingdom yet. That is real. We live in a world that has violence, that has inequality, that has sin that we must be set free from. We live in an actual dark place, and I fear that a lot of people lose this, um, to be honest with you, in our reactionary approach to how personal sin was made, we actually lose how expansive it is. Like, I mean, something I think about a lot is that like expanding across time, culture, geography, there are some things that are universally true. I don't care if you are in St. Louis, Missouri, 60 years from now, or rural Zambia 2000 years ago. There are some things that will be true in both of those places. Women will be mistreated. Racism will exist. Violence will exist. These are the universal truths of a dark kingdom. These are real. They exist in every society. Abuse exists in every society. Violence exists in every society. Violence based on inequality exists in every society, in all time, in all places. But the other universal truth is that when Jesus reigns and is king, none of those things will be anymore. And it's emotional to think about. Revelation 21 announces that in Jesus' kingdom, there will be no more violence. There will be no more tears. And the amazing story of Acts is the struggle of that kingdom beginning to give us glimpses and take hold in reality and in the world. And that's the same tradition that we're a part of now. We live in a dark world. It is also a beautiful world. <laughs> it is also a world filled with the aroma of Christ's kingdom. And that's an that's a interesting struggle to live, intention to live within. And so the good news here is what it will be, what Jesus' kingdom is, and what he has done to repair this expansive sin in the world. Now I want to jump into what happened because they preached this word, which, by the way, was very different than what was typically preached in the synagogue. And I'll just kind of summarize for you what happens here. This was week one of their sermon. You know, this was week one at the synagogue, and it had massive ramifications. They were incredibly popular and hated at the same time. They, the word spread and Gentiles especially were drawn to this message. People wanted to know more, to learn more. And the next week they preached a second time. And this time there were so many people who wanted to be a part of this that the whole city showed up. And side note here, this is evangelism. Preaching the kingdom where Jesus is king and what that world looks like is evangelism. Way more than the people who knock on my door and ask me if I'm going to heaven or hell if I die tonight. And by the way, if I read the NIV instead of the KGV or whatever, KJV, uh, yeah, King James. Um, like this is actual evangelism and they put it into practice. They didn't just talk about this kingdom. They lived it out there in that moment. 
they told the people on that second Sunday that this good news was for the Gentiles, for everyone. It was not for them and no longer for the Jews. It was just expansive now. It was for all people. This good news was for all people. And that really upset some of the Jewish leaders in the synagogue. And this is where I think it's like, I don't know, as I was sitting with this, I kind of was going with um, sort of an understanding that I had come to absorb, which is like, yeah, these Jewish leaders were like the big time. These were the, the head honchos. These were like the serious players. And as I read more, I had to face the fact that they were the leaders of an incredibly marginalized people group. They were not superpowers. They, these Jewish leaders were the leaders of an incredibly marginalized people group. And remember back when I was telling you about the history piece and how important it is for them to remain grounded in their history because they're living in an empire that they are terrified of losing themselves inside of. This is why they were so threatened at the expansion of God's redemption to the Gentiles because they were terrified that if the Gentiles could be part of God's family without having to become Jews first, just as they are, because God's love is that big and good, then what would happen to their culture? What would happen to their Jewishness? What would happen when their daughters and sons start marrying Gentiles? What would happen when they start listening to Gentile music and they start like watching Gentile movies? You know, um, what would happen? They would be assimilated. They were terrified that their greatest fear of losing their identity to the Roman Empire would be catalyzed in like uh, gasoline on a fire if Gentiles were now part of God's family. And what is so crazy, and perhaps the greatest tragedy of this story, is that in resisting that assimilation that they were so afraid of, they embraced the empire in deeper ways than they ever would have if all of their children married Gentiles. They embraced violence. They embraced persecution. It tells us in this story that they gave Paul and his entourage, Barnabas and the rest, such a hard time that they had to flee the whole region and they shook the dust off their feet. It's in that story of Jesus when he's giving the story of Jesus. It's not an accident that he uses these words. The Jewish leaders didn't recognize him and gave him to Pilate. They, they became the thing they feared. They were afraid of becoming part of the empire. And so their terror at doing so made them conjoin, cohabitate, become a tool of the empire through violence and persecution. They killed and murdered Jesus when he was innocent only by joining the empire. And how tragic is this and how true is this for our world today? How many Christians are so terrified of the world corrupting the faith and the people of God that we actually, um, we actually join the demons of this world in trying to keep ourselves separate from this world? An example of this I thought of this week was how many Christians celebrated when the White House announced a tragic reduction of refugees into this country down to 15,000 next year, which is a tenth of how many came in the last year of President Obama's presidency. 
which is a fraction of the people, the over 80 million people who are displaced in our world. But how many Christians were celebrating this, thinking, keeping America great, keeping, a, am I getting like way too on the nose, Kurt? Or is it, okay. <laughs> okay. He's motioning, I'm okay. Uh, how many of our churches saw this as protecting us? You know, and I don't believe that the people our country is keeping out are violent at all. I don't believe that. But if you were to embrace their vision here, follow with me here, their logic, by their own logic, they are saying, we don't want criminals here. We don't want MS-13 here. We don't want terrorists here, et cetera, et cetera. So we are going to use violence. We are going to use the destruction of families. We are going to use forced surgeries. We are going to use every means the state has available to execute violence on marginalized people to keep these people from coming here and making us violent. Like, do you understand how parallel this is to exactly what happened then and the tragedy of that? So the question for us is, where are God's people who will preach the good news? Where are God's people who will see that Sin is expansive in Christ's redemption is even more expansive. We're needed. Churches like Cascade are needed. God's people who will speak that truth. We need to evangelize our own right now. We need to share the good news that when Jesus reigns, all of this division will be wiped away. All of this violence will be wiped away. Racism will be wiped away. And this is like critical, you know. We need to spend a long time in our country reflecting on how you could be a follower of Christ, a Christian in good standing and own slaves. Have we unpacked how that, was, how that became so normal in our society? Well, it became normal because we had, they had minimized sin to the point of just tithe 10%, you know, pursue comfort, make as much money as you can, etc. Um, read the right books, sing the right songs. You know, and it's actually not far off from so many things that have become normal in the modern American church today. And so, as I was reading this and reading about what happened after they preached the good news, I just couldn't help but think about these times and how important it is that we preach the good news. Um, that Jesus Christ is resurrected and will set us free from all sin. And that in his kingdom, the world will not look the way it looks now. And the story ends with, like I said, these men being persecuted and driven out of the city. But before they leave, the church there explodes in growth. You see, before they leave, and this is partly why the Jewish leaders sent them out too, is just sheer jealousy. So many people were drawn to this good news and wanting to live into this new world where Jesus reigns. And so I, um, in closing, I just want to encourage us. Um, I kind of made it sound like our world is really bad. <laughs> I'm realizing that now. Um, there are a lot of dark things, but the hope that keeps me going, like I've been involved in work through Tier Fund and before Tier Fund, other organizations that is trying to live into Christ's kingdom in the here and now uh, for like over 15 years. And the only way I could be sustained for that long 
the only way I could be sustained for that long was believing in my depths that Christ is risen and that his kingdom will have no more racism, no more violence, no more inequality. In truly believing that, and the amazing thing is that the Spirit of God is speaking to us and reminding us of that truth on a day-to-day basis. We see it in moments breaking into the world all the time. These are reminders that this can happen. We see it in the 20 women in Liberia who began praying in a fish market and a year and a half later ended a civil war. That's Christ's kingdom breaking into this world. We see it in that moment when Pope Francis knelt before uh, Muslim prisoners, inmates at a prison, and washed their feet. We see it in all these moments where like radical love not only is demonstrating what the kingdom will look like, but actually embodying it there in the moment. And it always looks unusual because it's antithetical to the norms and fundamental truths of this world, which if you want a reminder of those, read the description of how they murdered Jesus that Paul gives. They handed him over. He had done nothing and murdered him in collusion with the empire. The Jewish leaders colluded with them. They became just like them. And so that's what's given me a lot of hope is just seeing God work, seeing the spirit of God move. And there is a lot of movement happening right now, and it is easy to get discouraged. Um, But something that's given me a lot of hope is seeing the Spirit of God move now in the Black Lives Matter movement, seeing the Spirit of God move now in the movement to end the family separations at the border, seeing the Spirit of God move in a lot of ways. Um, And so we got to take moments to celebrate those things and be encouraged by them, no matter the fact that the struggle remains. So um, can I close in prayer? Yeah? Okay. God, we just thank you for your character. We thank you that you choose to be identified as the one who rescued his people out of Egypt, that you continue to give us that identity of yourself. God, that you sent your son. God, that he is redeeming all things in this world. Lord, we we thank you for your love, your expansive love, God. And I pray that um, you work in us, you send your spirit to us. God, I pray that we can be moved by your spirit to expand um, our ideas of what your redemption in this world can look like and give us strength, Lord. Many of us are tired. Many of us are discouraged. Give us strength and anchor us in the hope of your coming kingdom. Thank you for this church, for the pastors, for their wisdom. Um, Thank you, God, for your love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Thank you, Jason. It's such a good reminder of uh, the whole reason why we did this message series, is seeing all the same overtures in Acts, that these cycles throughout history repeat themselves over and over again. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's also a good challenge, too. I, I feel like Sometimes the movement for Christ's kingdom is to own the powerful, um, not liberate the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, you frame that incredibly well. 
I appreciate you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah. We should just hold eye contact for the rest of this call. Yes. <laughs> I'm hanging up now. So. Okay.